Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Melissa Hart, and it is my pleasure this evening to introduce my uncle, Linwood Hart. After an extensive 30-year career with AT&T, he embarked upon a second career in 1996 as an executive coach and professional speaker. Tonight, he is here to share with us his newest passion as a writer. His new book, Reginald F. Lewis, Before TLC Beatrice, The Young Man Before the Billion Dollar Empire, is based upon his years of friendship with one of Baltimore's most successful Native sons, Reginald F. Lewis. My role this evening is to serve as the first step in introducing my uncle to you. At this point, I'd like to bring out my sister, Michelle Hart Wheaton, who will help me complete the opening of tonight's program. Michelle? Thanks, Melissa. We thought it would be helpful if we could show you a short visual that would provide you with a quick and effective introdu introduction to my Uncle Lenny and his book. So please sit back and relax for the next two minutes as we view, view the book's video trailer. Following the video, Melissa and I would love for you to give a resounding welcome to another proud son of Baltimore City our uncle, Linwood J. Hart. He has returned home with us to share with each one of you the story of his years with Reginald L. Lewis, Reginald F. Lewis, before TLC Beatrice. <coughs> Hi, my name is Lynn Hart. I'm the author of the book, Reginald F. Lewis Before TLC Beatrice, The Young Man Before the Billion Dollar Empire. The story of Lewis's days at Harvard and his ascension to Wall Street has been well documented in his autobiography and it was thoroughly covered on the pages of the Wall Street Journal when it all happened. American novelist John Gardner once wrote, History never looks like history when you're living through it. And that's the way it was with my life and the life of Reginald F. Lewis. I first met Lewis in 1956 when we were both teenagers living in the same West Baltimore neighborhood. For the next 10 years, our lives would be entwined together as high school competitors, teammates, classmates, and eventually roommates at Virginia State University. Reginald and I would remain friends until his untimely death in 1993, but for this 10-year period, I would be given a front row seat to history in the making, as Reginald was just beginning his journey on his way to becoming one of the richest men on the planet. In writing this book, I've tried to capture those 10 years, that slice of Lewis's life, in such a way that it might be instructive and even inspirational to others who seek to do as he did and that is to move their lives from being ordinary to becoming extraordinary. If you're someone who still believes it's possible to overcome the barriers and the challenges that stand between you and achieving your life's goals, then I would encourage you to pick up a copy of this book. Besides an interesting backstory into the life of Reginald F. Lewis, it also seeks to answer the question, 
What was Reginald Lewis like before he became so incredibly wealthy? Again, the title of the book, Reginald F. Lewis Before TLC Beatrice, The Young Man Before the Billion Dollar Empire. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I always have a series of commercials that I have to give, and these are not usually too terribly important, but they are to let you know how pleased I am to be here. Uh, there's a lot of uh, connection and history with my life here in Baltimore. I'm a native of Baltimore, and whenever I get back here, it's, it's kind of special, and this is what this is about, too. It's also extra special because I get a chance to talk about my friend, um, Reginald F. Lewis, and I've always thought over these years that um, it was our job to help carry on his legacy in a way that maybe we have been a bit reluctant to, some of his friends, folks who knew him. But then I've thought about it over the, the years. Reginald was such a private guy that there aren't many people who have a lot of insight into who he really was. And I'm not professing to have a lot, but I do have some stories to tell. And so therein lies the secret or the genesis to the book, why we decided to write the book. Before I get too far down the path, let me just say I really do appreciate you all coming out this evening. It's a special deal for me. I know you probably have things to do, and you've taken time out of your day to come. And so that's a special deal for me. It's also special for me as I look through this audience, I see three people who have pretty much made this whole thing worthwhile for me because I look out, I see them, and that's Reginald's mother, his father, and his sister, and I just want them to stand and be recognized. Would you, Butch, you and Mrs. Sugar, just stand, so people know who they are. You know, over the, over the course of your life, you meet people who leave an indelible imprint on you. And when you say it, uh, sometimes they probably wonder, how did we do that, and exactly what is he talking about? But at a long distance, I've always admired these folks. Uh, they've been inspirational to me. If you, if you buy the book, there's a segment in there that I actually dedicate to, <laughs> to Butch. I call him Butch now. Gene Fugit Sr. I, we called him Butch. But, but it's the kind of thing that made this whole project so, so, um, so important to me. So I guess in many ways, I'm proud of the fact that I've known these folks. And his mother, who has been an inspiration, and all you have to do is know her for a short moment, and you'll understand why Reginald was so dynamic and why he was so successful. It's extraordinary people, so it's a special deal for me to be here and to speak to you. And his sister is there. Now I got to say, she was a she was a young kid when I was around here, and so I know the brothers, but but she was a little tot when I was around here. Um, I also want to take a moment to thank members of my family who've come out to support me in their hearts and Edmonds and other people around this town, this town that I know. Uh, I don't ask members of my family who've decided to come out and hear this story one more time if you would stand. And I know they're out there somewhere, but just stand up and so people can recognize my cousins. <laughs> so the question you, oh, one other thing I want to mention, this has to do with this edifice, with this building. Um, I didn't know when I was writing the book that I would be here doing this, but in the book, there's a segment where we talk about this library. And I wanted to get this out because I wanted to, as they say, give the library some props before I got too far into the story. Um, Reginald and I started the, the, the infamous Hillman journey. And in the book, you can read about the Hillman journey. 
it's a, it's a testimony to the kind of guy Reginald Lewis was and his determination, his, his charisma and everything else. But it all began right here. We were on our way back to Virginia State and we, Reginald said, I have some books to return to the library. And I remember as a young man passing this building with my parents. And I always looked at this building and said, my goodness, I wonder what's in there. And back in those days, I wondered if I could even be allowed to come in. This is in the 50s. And so at that juncture, when Red said, we've got to return the books, I was all excited about coming in here. And so this book has an a, a interesting connection to the story. And you, you can read about that. Um, a question that you might ask, um, who was Reginald F. Lewis? I think most of the folks here probably know who he was. Uh, a dynamic figure, an incredibly talented guy, an incredibly successful man. Um, over his lifetime achieved things that most people only dream about and I tell people arguably at the time of his death he was the richest African American on the planet. I believe that and I say that with some reservation because no one really ever knew what Reginald was doing, what he had, so you can't say for sure, but I think that's an arguable point I could make. He was probably the richest African American on this planet. The other thing I would say is that um, his achievements, uh, the McCall deal that he uh, McCall Patton's uh, deal that he uh, settled in 1983, $22 million uh, purchase of McCall Patton's, told me that he was in a different class. Um, when we were roommates at Virginia State uh, and neighborhood friends in West Baltimore, there was no indication that he would end up where he ended up. But I always knew that he would be successful. And the reasons I thought he would be successful had little to do with uh, intellectual acumen or um, his ability to, to, to think deeper than people. It was mainly his determination. Um, I remember as freshman at Virginia State, I, I observed his, his habits um, and his, the, the way he approached things. And it was unique for me to watch that and interesting because Reginald was a structured person who from the first day we set about as roommates, begin to, to design his life. Freshmen and male students at Virginia State University were privileged to have their laundry done for them. Women didn't have that privilege. They did the laundry for men. And we'd put our laundry in and we'd get it out at the end of the week and inside of the shirts there was a cardboard insert. And just like typically today. And one of the first things I noticed about Reginald which said he was different was he began to cut that cardboard into, into, into two sections and fold one over, and he would write out his weekly activities, like what I'm going to do in the morning, breakfast, uh, my first class, lunchtime, uh, football practice, uh, library, and studying. When I first saw him do that, I said, this won't last very long. He won't, this brother won't be doing this very long. But he was diligent in doing it consistently. And this is how you are affected by people. I was not organized, not as organized, let's put it that way. And I saw how that habit was benefiting him. Never late, on time, always prepared. And so I began to do the same thing. But here's the deal, I would never tell him I was doing it. So, you know, observation. And so those kinds of qualities, I think, fed into the narrative of who he is and who he became. Uh, I like to tell people Reginald Lewis just didn't show up someplace. He had a life before. 
he got to Harvard and Wall Street. And so that's what this book is about. This book is about Reginald Lewis before TLC Beatrice. Um, it's about the makeup of the man and less about the making of the money. So why would I do that? Why would I write about the makeup of the man? Well, I believe that there are lessons that have not been told. There are lessons that have not been revealed about Reginald F. Lewis that could be beneficial to particularly young people these days and, and those of us who are still out there trying to make it. Um, I like to talk about uh, his, his confidence and his determination, but I've always felt it went further than just being confident and, and determined. If this were a, a religious um, audience here, I'd say this differently, and I see my cousin back there, Reverend Dr. Harold Hart, who's always been a big supporter of mine, he'll understand this. You'd call it faith. You'd call it faith. But in Reginald's case, it was faith, but more in a secular way, it was what I have always referred to as a sustainable belief in the inevitability of his success. And what's important about those words is that it's a sustainable belief. I've met many, many people who've told me, I will be someone one day. I will be successful one day. And the first bump in the road, <laughs> they give it up. They give it up. But young Reginald had a sustainable belief that sustained him through a lot of difficulty in the first part of his college career and when we were roommates. And I've often wondered how many people even knew of that because I saw in that the fabric of the man in a way that I don't think anybody else ever did. Now, those of us who went to school with him, we saw this. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm about telling the story of Reginald Lewis when it wasn't all that good. And so what did he do with the challenges and the difficulties that he faced? What did he do with those? How did he confront those? The first one I'll tell you is everyone knows how difficult it is to go to college when you have money. Uh, you need money to go to, to go to college. And Reginald was in school. Both of us were in schools, unschooled on scholarships. And without that money, it became extremely difficult. Um, for me, it might have even been impossible, but the fact is that that money was important. And Reginald and I went to school on football scholarships. His football career did not turn out the way we had expected it to and that he had expected it to. And underlying all that is a loss of your financial underpinnings. You have family can help you, but that, that kind of money you lose, that, that's a real blow. For some, it may have been the death blow. But Reginald saw that as just another thing I'd have to get over. And with the support of his family uh, and his mother, Butch, and the rest of them, Reginald began to come out of it and to start the march towards success. I love to tell people about the story of the bowling alley. And I know if you've heard this, bear with me, because I, this is one of, my, one of my, my most fondest memories of Reginald Lewis, because this just tells you who he was. In the quest for money and financial support, we decided that we would leave campus and go over to the other side of town and look for jobs in a bowling alley. This was in 1961 in a southern town, small southern town of Petersburg, Virginia, at the height of the civil rights movement. Everything was tough for black folks in those days in Petersburg, Virginia, particularly off campus. So we get word that there's this bowling alley uh, that was just opening up. 
the Skylark Bowling Alley. And so we're sitting around a room and said, we got to go over there and see if we can get some jobs, man, get some work, maybe put some money in our pocket. So we did. We went over, and there were a couple of other guys. I've long since forgotten their names, but when we walked into the place, it was a white-owned establishment, and you could see you walked in, there weren't any black folks around. And my first thought was, oh, boy, we ain't getting nothing here. What we will get here will be janitorial. It'll be cleaning up. It'll be maybe working the counter, maybe even pen setters. And I was relating this to Reginald, and he turned to me, and he said, and I'm going to use exact words. He said, I don't want to do any of that shit. <laughs> I said, well, what do you have in mind? He said, well, I think I could run this joint. And, you know, my first thought was, okay, here we go again. You know, that's Reggie just blowing his horn. Here he goes again. And so I didn't think much of it until a couple weeks later I see him. He's coming in kind of late. And I said, what's what you got, a new, new girlfriend over town? He said, no, you know that bowling alley over there that I told you that we went to see? I said, yeah. He said, um, I'm working over there now. I said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm the manager. <laughs> I'm the, he said, I'm the manager. I said, what do you mean you're the manager? He said, well, I'm, I'm running it. Well, here's the deal. He was, he was the night manager. I don't know how he did this, but he was the night manager at that bowling alley, and believe me, he was running it. I went over there, and he was marching around there like the proudest peacock you'd ever want to see. He's calling shots, but he was actually running that bowling alley. I mean, this is just the kind of guy he was. Now, whenever I'm talking about Reginald Lewis, I always have to give a testimony. This is what I call my disclaimer. It wasn't all candy and roses with me and, me and Reg as roommates. If you know Reginald Lewis, Reginald Lewis was a hard charge. He had opinions about everything, and he would defend his position uh, aggressively against anybody. He would argue well into the night to make his point, and he could be stubborn. He could be stubborn, and he had a temper. He could, he could get angry quickly, but here's the deal. Whenever I tell people about <laughs> this disclaimer, I believe that we became good friends as roommates because if you had known me, I was the same way. You know, we'll argue a point and we'll never give up and, you know, just just sometimes be cockiness to the point of just being stubborn. But so as roommates, it, it worked out because we'd have these very aggressive discussions where we'd just go on into the night or into the day. And then when it was over, you know, Reg might say or I might say, hey, let's go down to the student union building and, and get a milkshake. And that's what we did. So the point is that if you meet people who knew Reginald F. Lewis, you may get a different story, a different perception of who he was. But I've always contended that if you were going to be his friend, you had to be able to give and take. You had to be able to take the heat. And you had to be able to be engaged in what I call productive conversation. And productive conversation is the kind of conversation where you can have it and walk away and still be friends. I always talk about when I was speaking, I talked about relationships, and one of the one of the uh, uh, descriptors that I use to describe relationships is uh, there, there are relationships that, ca that can sustain heat. And the way to think about that is if you have a relationship with a friend and it's kind of shaky, well, it's kind of like a paper cup. And when you put hot steaming conversation in that paper cup, guess what happens? It can't hold up. And there are people who have relationships that are built the same way. They're like paper cups. And when the hot, steamy conversation disagreements take place, they don't hold up. But I've always thought of the friendship and relationship we had was more like a steel mug. You could put hot, steaming content in there. You could get after each other really good. But that relationship held up. And so over the years, I think people who were not constructed that way or didn't have relationships constructed that way 
they may have a different view of Reginald Lewis, but in my view, you had to be able to give and take. You had to be able to, you had to, be able to give as good, as good as you got. Um, I want to share a story with you. And before I do that, let me just talk a little bit about the, 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 the other, there's a couple of other qualities that I want to address. One is um, I always get questions long before I knew that there weren't many people who were from this 10-year period who were publicly talking about Reginald Lewis. People who knew that I knew him would say, what was it about him that made him so successful? And I've given you some clues already. But the one thing that I remember, and this goes back to a conversation that we had about his grandfather, Sam <coughs> Cooper. I think his name was Sam. Samuel, was it Sam? His, uh, I know it was Cooper. Was it Sam? Yes, Sam Cooper. And he would talk about his grandfather, and it always came down to two things. Well, it didn't always come down to two things, but it did often. An expression that he claimed his, his, his grandfather used to have, and, that, and my dad used to say this too, but you get a job, you've got to make good money. Reginald would say good money and break out laughing. He'd say, man, I made some good money, and he'd break out laughing. So Reginald was, he was, his, he was focused on not just making you know, a little bit of money, but he wanted to make good money. And the other one was this notion that if you were going to get engaged in something, be prepared to work, you know, work for it. And, I, and this, so when people ask me why I thought he was so successful, I'm, I always reflect on the fact that as a young person, I was like everybody else, and I suspect he was too, but you have wishes. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do that. And you can sit and daydream about your wishes. And somewhere along the line, those wishes turn into wants. I, I, I want this. I want, I want this thing. I want it really bad. But the key W, the one that comes behind wishing and wanting, is work. And Reginald understood that that W, that work, W, was the one that really moved the meter. And so your willingness to work can overcome a lot of things. Um, I know I'm not saying anything you haven't read or heard, Reginald Lewis didn't start college as the brightest guy on campus. Reginald Lewis didn't start college with the guy who had the most money. But there was no one who was going to outwork him, and there was no one who was going to, going to be more determined to succeed. So the, the, the whole understanding of the, the power of work and how it played into success was something that he had that most people did not have. Um, I want to read something to you because it'll tell you a little bit more about me and about our, our year's roommates. Um, I, I think his parents might remember this. Reginald had a tape recorder, and it was a WebCore tape recorder. They don't make those anymore. And when we went off to Virginia State, he played it all the time. Now, he played show music, Porgy and Bess, classical music, jazz. He liked jazz. And so he would turn that thing on, and I was a more of a R&B guy, you know? So I'd say, you know, I need to put some different kind of music on that tape recorder. He said, no, this is what I'm listening to when he played. And so I had a little radio, a little transistor radio, and so I would turn that on and play. So we kind of had this little thing going with a, who's going to play what. So we said, here's what we'll do. You turn on your recorder. I won't make a fuss about it. I turn on my radio. I don't, he won't make a fuss about it. So we agreed. I had this habit of wanting to, I wanted to be a radio broadcast personality in those days. And I really wanted to do that bad. I, I wanted to do that in the worst way. And so I would break out into these, these, these just newscasts. Now, you're probably going, like, what sense does that make? But it, it did make sense to me. 
I, John Cameron Swayze, Douglas Edwards, you know, uh, Chet, whatever his name was, all these guys were my heroes. But there was one thing about them that was always a bit of an impediment to me. They were white, and there weren't any black newscasters in that day. But that's what I wanted to do. And I would break out, I'd say, good afternoon, this is Lynn Hart at the top of the hour with your local news. News, news out of Bradenton, Florida. We just had an interruption of brazen daylight robbery that took place in Bradenton. 23 unemployed paper hangers broke into a tattoo parlor and made off with over a thousand tattoos of various colors, shapes, and sizes. The thieves proceeded to sell their ill-gotten gains at the local Esso station. <laughs> news at 6, film at 11. Now, just out of nowhere, I would do that. I'd just say, you are absolutely crazy. You're insane. But it was my way of having fun, and, and we had fun with that. But he would say, at some point, he said to me, you want to be a radio broadcaster, but what are you really doing about that? And, you know, I said, well, I don't know, I'm just having fun with it. He said, well, you know, you really ought to do something about that. I want to read to you a segment that describes the kind of guy Reginald was and uh, what he set out to do for me and to help me understand that if you're going to have a career, if you're going to build something, you need bricks and mortar. You need to put something under it. And to set this up, I'm, I'm in the dormitory room. I'm asleep. Reginald comes in late. And he has a guy with him, a fellow with him. I had just fallen asleep when the doors swung wide open. The light switch was abruptly turned on, and the room was flooded with light. I woke up immediately. It was well past midnight, and the standard roommate uh, courtesy under such conditions was to use the desk lamp. I was startled to see Reggie and this other guy entering the room. His guest was a neatly dressed, professional-looking guy. I shouted out in a loud voice, Red, Reg, what in the hell are you doing? Turn off that light. Can't you guys see I'm trying to get some sleep? His visitors seemed to understand my reaction, but my comments fell upon deaf ears as far as Reg was concerned. He was determined to make a point. That night he was going to conduct his own version of the Tonight Show, and he was going to play the role of Johnny Carson, the host. His unnamed companion was going to be the guest for the evening, and I was going to be his audience. Reginald pressed on with his own running commentary. Hart, he always called me Hart, never called me Limit, always called me Hart. Hart, I want you to meet somebody. He asked his guest to introduce himself. The guy offered a polite apology for having awakened me at such a late hour. The moment I heard him speak, though, a thought came over me. I didn't recognize his face, but I knew I'd heard his voice before. By now, Reggie was fully engaged in his role as a late-night talk show host. He said, Hart, this guy is doing exactly what you want to be doing someday. He's in the radio and television business. You need to get up and talk to him right now, right this moment. Reg pulled up a chair for his guest and set him right down in the middle of the room. By now, his guest was brandishing a half-smile that revealed a slight hint of embarrassment. Finally, the guy introduced himself, saying, Hi, I'm Max Robinson, the evening disc jockey on station WSSV in Petersburg. Well, he just about knocked me out of my seat with that one. In those days, Max was a struggling young DJ spinning records on a local radio station in Petersburg, Virginia. Reggie was, was aware that I had listened to Max regularly. They had bumped into each other that night in Petersburg, and Reginald simply could not pass up this opportunity. 
He saw this as a way to provide me with the impetus to start laying down some bricks and mortar and building my dream of becoming an announcer. He had convinced Max to come over to our dormitory room to share his experiences with me. The three of us spent the rest of the night discussing the future prospects of African Americans in the radio and television business. Max and Reg were both supportive of my desire to enter the field of broadcasting. Afterwards, I could see Reginald felt good about having pulled off this late night stunt and successfully. There was nothing he loved more than surprising people this way. I made it a little easier for him to take a bow on this one. I really appreciated what he had done, and I told him so. By reaching out to introduce me to Max, he had accomplished something much bigger than the introduction. By his actions, he was saying, Hart, I believe you actually have the ability and the voice to become a radio broadcaster. It was a vote of confidence coming from him. This was the most important thing that happened that night. It lent credibility to the idea of using my voice and speaking ability as an essential part of my career planning. Max was a person already doing it. He was an African-American broadcaster working at a white station and in the South, no less. He was living proof that it was possible. For Reginald Lewis, it was pretty simple. If you're going to build something, you have to be willing to do something. I needed to start applying some bricks and mortar and building my own dream. From that night on, I never wavered in my understanding of the power of speech and voice when it came to opening doors and influencing people. <laughs> I, I never worked in the radio and television broadcast industry, but many years later I enrolled and completed the St. Louis-based broadcast center course as a broadcast developer. By that time, my career in the telecommunications industry was well underway. I saw the broadcast center experience as another way of continuing to strengthen my presentation and communication skills. It was these skills that I would call upon and that I would come to rely upon in advancing my career over the course of my many years as a business executive, professional speaker, and leadership coach. That late night meeting in 1961 was a big deal for me. Thanks to Reginald Lewis and Max Robinson, I'd found the bricks and mortar. If you're unfamiliar with the name Max Robinson, you might be interested to know that Max went on to play a key role in the evolution of broadcast television uh, history in the United States. In 1978, he made history when ABC, uh, when an ABC executive, Rune Arledge, hired him to be a co-anchor of the network's evening news broadcast. When, when Rune gave him the job, Mr. Arledge bestowed upon Max a very significant title. Max Robinson became the first black man to anchor a nightly network news broadcast and the history of the American broadcasting. Max was working at the ABC Chicago affiliate at that time. He was teamed with Frank Reynolds in Washington and Peter Jennings in London. From 1978 to 1984, they co-anchored ABC Evening News. Max's assignment was a major breakthrough in helping to bring down years of racial discrimination in the broadcast industry. Max died on December 20, 1988. But Reginald reaching out like that did something for me. Because when Reginald did that, what he was saying is, I do think you have the ability to use your voice. And as I said, I, I, I never did work in the broadcast industry, even though I turned down opportunities to do that. But I learned the power of the spoken word. I learned what it means to be able to put your thoughts together and communicate them. And in writing that book, it's a chapter I wanted to, to communicate to young people. I've always believed that um, Reginald's story has power in terms of its resonance with young people, in terms of helping them see what's possible. Even though the day is different, yes, it's different today, probably a lot tougher, whatever you want to say about it. 
But at each of these chapters in this book, I've tried to put a little moral at the end of it. You know, that I didn't just tell you the story to be telling you this story. There's something at the end of it I want you to take away. The, the, the other thing I want to share with you in this book, and this is a letter. I kept this letter. you got to understand this. When I left Virginia State College in those days, I knew Reginald Lewis was going to be successful. Now, I had no, I had no idea how successful, but I knew he was going to mount to something because he, he, was, he was driven to achieve things that were beyond what most of us were thinking about. It's that simple. His vision of what was possible was bigger than ours. And towards the end of his life, even though I did not know it was near the end of his life, Almost a year and a day to his passing, he wrote me this letter. And I want you to remember there's a line in here that I take great pride in. He said, Dear Lynn, this is January 18th, 1992. And if you can do the math, you know how that lines up with Reginald's final day. It's a year and about one day, I believe. Great to hear from you, Lynn. Trust things are going well for you and the entire family. Yes, I am pleased with my progress, especially now that I am operating internationally. Europe is quite a place to be uh, just now. Economic integration is a reality in many respects already, and political integration will probably occur in our lifetime. I remember well some of our debates in college, and our interchanges certainly toughened me then for the hard battles ahead. All the best, Reg. Now, I kept this letter because I had no idea that I'd be writing a book. But, you know, in that letter, what he talks about is those days in the room when the place was practically on fire and we were getting after each other pretty good about things, whether it was the civil rights movement, whether it was politics, whatever it was. Um, I owe a lot to this guy, and I don't know that I've ever said this that much in public before I wrote this book. Um, the last story I want to share with you is something, and then we'll take some time for Q&A. Um, When, when I first went off to Virginia State, I was, I was a football player first and student second. Not that I wasn't capable of delivering the grades. I'd always done that. But I didn't think there was a, I had no vision of ever getting out of that place. I was going to play football, and that was it. Uh, but as time went on, I started thinking, you know, I might, I might get out of here. And the transition for me took place that first year. I was a major in industrial arts. Um, and so nothing wrong with industrial arts, but it wasn't business, um, at least as I saw it, it was teaching industrial arts. And Reginald uh, was majoring in political science, economics. And so I came back to the room one day, and what was interesting about this, all the, all the, the buildings that taught the industrial arts piece, when you walked out of the dorm, you went left. And when you were working on, on the other side of the, the curriculum, you went right out of Williams Hall. So our day began getting up in the morning and breakfast, and I went left, he went right. And so one afternoon, I walked into the to one of his lunch period, and I walked into the room, and Reg and another guy, a friend of ours, had the Wall Street Journal out. So, you know, they were over there just diligently marking off stuff. You know, AT&T, ITT, they were just jabbing around. And I said, uh, let me take a look at that. Now, just in good, good, good natured, and we talked to each other this way, Reg said, you don't know nothing about it. This is the Wall Street Journal, man. Go on back over there. That's, that's how we talked to each other. So, so I said, well, I said, that's kind of like disrespecting me a little bit, brother. He said, no. He said, this is, this is the Wall Street Journal over here. And so, so I, I thought about it for a minute. And I said, uh, yeah, it's about business, right? So I started nosing around, you know, and I said, you know, I said, Reggie, give me that paper. 
later in the afternoon, give me that paper. I want to look at it. So I looked at it. And we started talking about business, started talking about what was current in that time frame of business. And from that conversation, I changed my major. I changed the next year, business administration. And that probably would not have happened if it hadn't been for him challenging me that way. When he said, brother, you don't know what this is. Get on out of here. Well, now I got to find out now, see. I got to go. I got to get in this pretty good. And so, and, and we used to kid about that. I mean, I said, you know, man, at the, I, you know, it wouldn't have happened that way. But um, so, so my point is this. We're all affected by each other. And I think I can clearly say um, my life was impacted by Reginald, Reginald F. Lewis. Uh, and others probably have other stories. People in here who may know I may have been affected the same way. Um, but I, I did want in writing this book to make the point that I'm more focused on that 10-year period between the time we left, time I met him in 1956, to the time he went off to Harvard. And, uh, and because I believe there's a lot in there that people don't know and need to know. So having said that, I want to bring us to a point now where I'd be happy to answer any questions. We're going to take maybe some Q&A for 15 minutes, and then when we finish, uh, we have books outside, and those folks who are interested, I'd be happy to, to sign your copy um, and, um, and take care of that little bit of business when we're all done here. But if there's any questions or Q&A you have, we have a mic up here. We'd ask you to come up to the mic and speak so folks can hear you. By the way, this, this uh, event is being podcast, so that's why we'll need the mics for your questions as well. Can you speak a little bit about uh, when you first met him? how you came to get to know him well, um, some of the pre-college experiences, and also perhaps some of the football and fraternity experience, okay. experiences um, that have helped him, that helped him um, become the man that he did? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Thank you, uh, Michelle. Um, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, I think it's a good way to let me proceed with. I, I met Reginald Lewis for the first time that I can recall. I'd seen Reginald in the neighborhood. Reginald, as some of you may know, uh, his roots were in East Baltimore and his family moved to West Baltimore later on in the early 50s. And I lived on Duplin Street. Reginald lived on Mosier Street. And I'd see this guy walking past my house. Sometimes he was dressed up. You know, he had that collegiate thing going real good. And I'd say, well, I don't know that dude. He's not from my neighborhood. And uh, then I noticed sometimes he had uh, a glove or he had a, a pair of spikes on his shoulders. And we were trying to put together a baseball team in my neighborhood. And so I just saw him one day. And I said, uh, hey, man, I said, you know, we got a baseball team. Would you like to play on, <laughs> would you like to play on our team? And he said, uh, I'm already on a team. I appreciate it, but I'm already on a team. And he said, what level age are you playing? And I told him age. He said, well, I'm playing up. I play with some older guys. And, and uh, uh, maybe maybe some other time, but I'm not. Uh, you know, we're playing real ball. Y'all playing street ball. So 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 that was that was it. And so uh, but then I noticed him passing again. I would speak with him, but that's the first. That's what first occurred. But what I what I learned is that Reginald's uh, grandparents had moved on Ashburton Street, I believe it was, on Ashburton Street, and he was walking past my house on the way over there, back and forth. Now, as far as football, this is one of my my, my biggest disappointments in the sense that people never saw him play like I saw him play in high school. Uh, there are people at Virginia State who think Reginald Lewis was not a good football player because of college, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling them, look, 
I know he was a darn good football player, and everybody in town knows that too, but they're all from Virginia, and they, they don't have it. So part of my drill also is to make people know. The, the bragging rights game, which is in the book, I won't go into all the detail, but it was a game that we played against Dunbar, and I talk about my, conf my conflict I had with playing Dunbar and appreciating Dunbar's role in the city with regards to, to black schools. But here we were, I went to a predominantly white school, Edmondson, when it first opened, and we were playing Dunbar. And so um, I, I'm almost tempted to tell you this story, but I'm not going to do it because what happens in that story is Reginald comes and his team onto the field, and I am admiring that team. I, I'm on the other school's team, but the way, the way they came into the stadium, they had that purple and that gold thing working, and they came down that stairway, and, and, uh, and Sugar Cane had those guys. They would fit the battle. And I knew Reginald, and Reginald saw me, and I was thinking, well, we're going to speak or what? He just said, what's up? And went right on by. He, he did, like I was not even there. Right on by. He was a quarterback on that team. And uh, they, they beat us soundly. I mean, they, they won the game. And Reginald threw for two scores that day. And he was scamping around. I did get my hands on him one time. I laid a good tackle on him one time there and got up and dusted him off a little bit. But Reginald was all over that field that day. And he was, he was, Reginald Lewis had a strong arm, very accurate, very athletic guy. I never knew the story of, I never knew quite what happened. And I know there's, I've tried to share this in the book, but when we left to go to Virginia State, Reginald was not on his game. He's not, I don't know what that was. But the point is, Reginald Lewis was one of the finest quarterbacks in this town. And some of his ex-ball players, when I was doing the book, I, I interviewed them and they confirmed that. Uh, my brother played against him, Rod. So we all know this. But when we got to Virginia State, whatever happened was giving him a lot of difficulty. And he soldiered on, man. He soldiered on and he troopered on. And, but it was, it was just a tough, tough uh, run for him. But that, that whole thing where my, where, where my regret is that people didn't see the Reds and Lewis on the field. But, you know, by divine intervention or whatever, that was the way it was supposed to be. That was the way it was supposed to be. And, and he went on and accomplished great things. Who knows what would have happened had he been great. The other thing, um, uh, the fraternity experience, uh, Reginald and I both, well, actually, I pledged in the, in the spring of 62, and when I was like two-thirds of the way through my pledge, but Reginald was not on that line. It was me and another guy named Al Banks and, and a bunch of other guys who pledged in Kappa. And I had completed most of my pledge work, and the dean said, well, you got one credit short. Sorry, you're not going to be able to finish. I said, that's it. I'll never be a member of this fraternity because knowing what I now know, I'm never coming back because <laughs> the experience that we had to go through. Well, Reginald was, was, uh, was uh, he was planning to go the next semester, and the other three of us, Albert Banks, he and I were on that same line. Al completed his work, and I, I was asked to step back. So that next semester, Reggie was, I think Reggie was pleased about this because now we could pledge together. I think he was concerned about pledging by himself because there was three of us, and this is all told in the book. But we were going at a different time than Reginald. But as it turns out, Reginald was so excited and enthused about all this. And he said, Hart, you got to pledge, man. Me and you will pledge together. you got to pledge. And I said, Reggie, I'm never going to pledge again because I know what you don't know. So, <laughs> so, 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 but anyway, I, I said, okay, man, we will do this together. We will pledge together. And so we were, we were pledge brothers. We got in there and, and did our thing. And, you know, we, we hugged each other and cried with each other. And we took it all. And when it was over, I say this, and I, I'm absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt at this. When he pledged and, and was fully anointed into the fraternity of Kappa Alpha Psi, 
that was his happiest moment on that campus. I can still see him. I can still see him. He was he had his hat on. He 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 and, and Reginald was not a heavy drinker, but that night he he let us know he could handle it. <laughs> and he he was he was he was laughing, he was hugging. And I, I tell I tell people and I say this to Reg, Reggie, you won't find many pictures of Reginald Lewis hugging another man, but that night we were hugging. And I may have the only one. I have a picture in his book, you'll see. But but it was just a joy to see him, and I was so pleased that it was it went the way it did. And and he was proud of that association with Kappa. I mean, we just had a big dinner down at Virginia State University, and Mrs. Fugit was there. She knows we dedicated the Reginald F. Lewis College of Business down there. It's named after him. And we had a big dinner, and we, we recognized him. And pro you may not know this, but we did the 50-year, our line was 50 years since we were Kappas. And um, we had a space for Reginald. Reginald's not there, obviously, but we had Tony standing for him. Tony stood in for his brother, held his plaque, and we took a picture of that um, that moment. So, yeah, and it was a, it was a hugely important part of his life because it gave him a new team without the football. Reginald was trying to find that team, but once he pledged Kappa, he was, he was, he was, he was with a group of people who were uh, high-quality people about something, and uh, he, was, he, he was at home, and uh, that was special. Any other questions? Anybody having questions? Come right up to the mic. We've got a little time here. My question was that through all of your, your time that you spent with Reginald, was there any point that he talked about a mentor even early on in your college days as well as, as – he progressed on to, to make the, the, the type of achievements he did. That's a good question. The question had to do with whether he ever talked about a mentor. And uh, not in those terms, but yes, he did. He had, he had role models, and I've alluded to that already. Um, in, in, the, in the book, there's a part where um, someone sent Reginald a rug. It was a scatter rug, and I, I suspect it was his mom, but it was a rug that had a nice pile to it, and it was a line of demarcation in our room because his stuff was on this side and my stuff was on that side. But that rug was a place where Reginald would sit, and he'd dig his feet into the pile of that rug, and he would begin talking about some of these folks who were mentors to him, who were role models. And among those, uh, you know, his, his grandfather, Sam Cooper, uh, he, he would tell me stories uh, about his grandfather and his grandfather's values, work ethics, and those kind of things, too. His mother, obviously, was, was one of the people who, who helped shape him and, uh, and give him the kind of um, value system that he needed. And again, his, his uh, Butch, uh, his stepfather, I talk about him in this book because, I, I, I mean, this is uh, Reggie's narrative was created by him in the sense that he was a very private guy and he didn't really spend a lot of time sharing this stuff. But if you were around him and he, he, you were part of his inner circle, he would go off into these discussions. And he would just talk about things. And so Butch was someone he talked about a lot. I, I can tell you as, I, as the book unfolds, there's this part about us taking the journey when, when Butch took us to college. I, he was kind enough. I didn't have a way to get to school. Uh, he drove me down, and Reginald and I, we went down, and he drove us down, talked about his days at Morgan State. And I didn't know he was a football player, and he had a whole bunch of history there for us. But those are some of the people, and there were others. But I, those three stand out in my mind. Because they shaped his value system. Uh, this is my take on it. They might agree or not, but this is my take on it. They shaped his value system. They gave him the confidence that he needed and, and gave him a sense of purpose that whatever he sought to do, he could do it. He could do it. 
And that kind of underpinning is missing in a lot of our young people today. I mean, just someone who's there to constantly remind you that you are a valuable person, you have incredible talents and abilities, and the world is there for you if you want it. Um, we were in a discussion one time about Reginald, um, and a friend of mine said to me, you have any idea this brother was going to do what he did? I said, no, I had no idea, but I knew he was going to do something. And so he was a guy who had been with us, spent a lot of time with us. He said, what, what was it that Reginald saw that we did not see? And for years we pondered that question, but there was no answer to that question. And it, it came to me about a year ago that we were asking the wrong question. It wasn't what did Reginald see that we didn't see. The question should have been, what did we see that Reginald did not see? Now let me explain to you. You've heard the expression out-of-the-box thinkers. These are people who are very, very creative, and they find ways to, whatever obstacles they see, whatever hurdles they see, they find ways to overcome them, get beyond, get over the border, whatever, get over the wall, just go and do their thing. Well, Reznel was not your standard out-of-the-box thinker, and this is the point I want to make. While we may have seen the box and the confinement and the walls, Reginald never saw the box. I don't think he ever saw the box. I think when he looked out and saw what was out there for him, what he could achieve, I think he saw not a clear field, but a possible field, a possibility. And so he was never deterred by what couldn't be. In those years when he was doing his thing, I was in St. Louis, and I, I can't tell you I was with him every day, every hour. That, that's why I don't write the book this way. But I would hear from him every once in a while, and he would always lead with this. He'd say stuff like, Hart, you won't believe this. And I said, brace yourself, because there's something coming. And I bet he did this with his family, too. When he did the Beatrice deal, I can almost bet that he told people, I I'm working on something big, but I can't tell you what it is. Because he, he would tell me that, you know, I'm working on something big, but I, I can't tell you what it is. Um, that was just who he was. And uh, I feel the, the need to, to share these kind of stories, because I know he was a very private individual. So, But uh, to answer your question, Okay. Anybody else have a question? We've got an open mic, so if you have one, step right up. Good evening. My name is Jermaine Johnson. I'm a Baltimore native also. And first, I thank you for telling the story. Um, I actually found out you were going to be here because I was downstairs in the African-American section. And I was just looking for the book because I'd read the book years ago. And I actually had the privilege. I'm a Dunbar alumni myself. And I had the privilege. We were like the last class that Reginald Lewis spoke to before his, before his death when he came and spoke to us. And I fell in love with the story. And I'm also a filmmaker. Right. And I'm just curious... Um, as you may be as well, or maybe you can help, why in cinema on screen we have not heard his story yet. And I, again, I thank you for writing your book. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Um, that's a good question. I, you know, there's always rumors about stuff about a movie in the making, and I know there's been some discussion about a screenplay already, somebody writing a screenplay. But I, I can't uh, add to that. But what I, what I can say is, uh, and this is just me, I don't, I don't profess to have any great uh, crystal ball on this, but I believe that Reginald led his life the way he wanted to, to, to live it, and much of the things that make up his life were things that he kept private to himself. Um, and so if you're going to do a story on someone's life, you need to have uh, some context. You need to have some background, some history. And from my experience, just from traveling around talking to people, um, there are not a lot of people who can say firsthand stuff. I mean, in high school, maybe in college, but in, in the, the financial piece, there, were, he was, there was a circle that he was in. And so a lot of data floating around, documentary stuff about Reginald Lewis, 
I don't think he would have wanted that because his privacy was too important to him. Um, so that may have something to do with it too. Uh, what I hope, and, and you're getting at one of the reasons why I, I, I wrote this book because I was speaking about him and, and his mother was in the audience and his wife and they just quietly suggested that I might want to do this and write these stories down. So I think some of that is a, is a result of the way he led his life and how much is out there in the public, not a whole lot. But I think that will change. I, I, I just don't ask me why, but I think that's going to change. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for your question. All right, I have a question for you. Um, if Reginald Lewis was alive today, what advice do you think he would have for today's young people? Just in terms of, you know, some of the things that are going on and uh, what sort of things do you think he would kind of impart to the young people to kind of inspire them? Yeah, um, that's a question that is a little tricky because I'm not, I think I know what he'd say, but it's hard to pin a guy like Reds down and be absolute about it. Um, but I, I do think he would talk about this belief thing that I spoke about a minute ago, the, the, the sustainable belief in the inevitability of your success. Uh, and I, and that, that sustainability is, is a huge point. That's an anchor point to the whole commentary. Uh, there are people who believe and can talk about, I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll get it done. But what I always remember about Reginald while he was talking about these things, and, and it's important to remember that he was not a braggart. He was not running around shouting at people. But if you were his friend, you knew he had intentions, and he would freely tell you that. But the, but the notion that you, you can do something, but that it may require that you do something extraordinary to ultimately accomplish it. And the extraordinary things in his life is things like getting into Harvard University. I mean, if you've read his autobiography, you know, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun, you understand that that the program that Reginald Lewis went to Harvard on, he was not eligible for. He, he was, Reginald, oh man. Um, Reginald was, uh, uh, he had already graduated. The program was for, for students who were still in school. But he said, I'm getting on that program hard. I said, go for it. So, but I mean, he got on that program and he got into Harvard. And I, I told Francis, I said, he's gone. And once he got into Harvard and because I knew that it's the same thing I said earlier about Reginald's life is about just let me in. Just let me in. Let me in. Virginia State, even if he was injured, we'll, we can debate about when it happened. But he knew that once I got in, I'd get out. And the, the program at Harvard, you know, he wasn't eligible for it, but just let me in. You know, once I get in, I can do the rest. And he did. I mean, he, he blew those people away up there once he got up there in that program. And, and so it was not a gateway. That program was not a gateway to Harvard. He, he used that as his, as his gateway. It was supposed to be for kids going back to school. The, the other thing is that if you look at his business deals, and I don't profess to have a lot of insight, you see his business deals. Just let me get in. I will fashion a strategy to win. And so that's what I think he would say to young people. That, that sustainable belief in the inevitability of your success is what really, really matters when the rubber meets the road. That's what I would say. Good evening. One of the things that has been suggested which characterizes an individual with the type of success that he's achieved uh, may have been um, suggested that they've had uh, long hours of being awake and short hours of being, of sleeping. Mm -hmm. um, in your relationship with him and looking back now and in retrospect, 
was he more of an introverted individual? Um, was he the type of person that was always driven in, in terms of in succeeding? Um, what type of person was he the man in, in that regard? Okay. Uh, yeah, you can imagine how difficult this is with his mother and his father sitting here. I'm telling you what kind of guy he is. But, <laughs> but, but I, I think the way I would describe that is that you got to understand, Reginald had, a, had a, a small circle of close friends. And I made a note. The other quality that I thought he had, he, he, he knew how to divorce himself from the need to have a lot of friends, a lot of people, you know. Uh, he had friends, but it was a small circle. And within, those, within that circle, um, people knew Reginald um, was a doer. He was a hard worker. And that uh, ultimately... He was serious when he talked about something. But now the other thing is that, and Reginald Lewis, and I don't know what the family thinks about this, but Reginald Lewis had a sense of humor. Because when we, when we were together kidding around, he had this, this laugh, and I don't know how to describe it. Somebody called it a, a belly. But he would laugh from the gut, and he would laugh hard, and, and he would joke around. He would needle you. Uh, there's a part in the book there where I talk about how we all lost our girlfriends at the same time. There's three of us, and we lost our girlfriends at the same time, and how Reggie was, 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 was riding me really hard, and then he got his dear John. Uh, so, I had to t- <laughs> so I had to turn the tables on him. A girl named Carolyn. I, I don't even know if you all know Carolyn, but I've often wondered, man, what did Carolyn be thinking about these days? She, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. But, but yeah, he, he, he was a guy who um, kept everything close to the vest. But he, as far as uh, uh, sleep, no, I, Reg, Reggie got his sleep, uh, you know, to the extent that I knew. But he, he, he was just focused in using his time. I mean, not a lot of wasted time. You know, he was going somewhere. You see him on campus, and I can still see him. He has a little jacket on and his cap, and has books on his arm, and he was beelining for somewhere. It was a library. It was his car. It was a job. It was a practice field, a dining hall. You see him beelining for that. And the dining hall is a whole other story because Reginald had a very sensitive um, pap. Reginald's and, and Reginald had a stomach. He didn't eat everything and anything, and it didn't work well for him eating that campus food. So he, he struggled with that. But that's a you got to buy the book to hear that one. Um, anybody else? Any other questions? Okay, great. We have some time for Q and A, and I will be outside. If you want to pick up a copy of the book, I will do that. I'll sign it for you. And the book is ten dollars. And uh, I will be out at the desk out there and signing for you. But I, first, I want to thank every one of you for coming. This has been a big treat for me, and it's glad, I'm glad I came, and I, I hope you got something out of it.